This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest today is my good friend, I shall not tell a lie, and uh, one of the really wonderful, best-selling authors that we have in this country, and that's Brad Meltzer. I just counted up uh, that Brad is responsible for, I think it's something like 24 books, and I don't know how many comics, actually, as well. And um, I can say that I was there at the beginning, at the very beginning. What I have always loved about Brad is when you read Brad's acknowledgments, Brad's personality comes out in such a wonderful way. And in the acknowledgement of his brand new bestseller called The Escape Artist, Brad says, 20 years. This book marks 20 years since my first novel was published. That means, dear reader, if you were there from the start, you're old, which is true. It is true. It also means I owe you big for giving me this writer's life. Brad and I will be right back. We're back. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. My guest is Brad Meltzer. Brad, you've written well over 20 books, 20 years of writing. What came before all of that? Uh, what came before all of that was fear. Um, it was fear. I mean, I think that I, I wish my start of my career, and, and the best part of doing this for me is I get to talk to someone who knows my family because I can't tell the story of my own life without telling my family story. And I think you you always got to see um, the fun part of my family, right? It was my mom and dad walking in here and my dad holding court and saying, you know, the guy who would walk into a store and go, I'm here for Brad Meltzer's new book. He's my favorite author. And everyone's like, Mr. Meltzer, we know is your son. Um, and that was my dad. Uh, what you didn't see was my dad, uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. On the day that I was born, my dad bought a bottle of champagne. And he said, I'm going to open up this bottle of champagne when my son Brad gets married. It was the only thing he ever planned for in his whole life. He was terrible with planning. And when he was 39 years old, he lost everything. Lost his job. Lost, you know, I mean, we had no place to live. It wasn't one of those like, oh, I just got to find a new job. It was one of those ones where it was fear. It was was a question of safety. And um, we were terrified. He was down to $1,200 was all he had left. And he said, we're going to have the do-over of life and we're going to move to Miami from Brooklyn, New York. And how old were you when that, when that happened? I was 13 years old and he started over from scratch. He, he called it the do-over of life. It seemed like it was some grand adventure. I was terrified, but he made it sound like it was an adventure. I remember we, my mom and dad were in the front seat driving down. Um, and in the back seat was my sister and myself. And behind the headrest were two bottles of champagne that would roll back and forth in the Florida sun. Because my parents didn't know anything about taking care of champagne, but they, you know, we were their lives. And um, when we got to Florida, I got a chance. I got a teacher, a local teacher named Ms. Sheila Spicer, who took a chance on me. 
I had other teachers um, who realized what I needed, and 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 they saved my rear end. And I got to college. I got became the first in my family to go to a four-year college. But to answer your question, the writer's life was never something that I ever thought I was going to do. And because it wasn't a real job. I didn't know it as a real job. A real job puts you know dirt under your nails and puts calluses on your hands. And I didn't know any writers, so that couldn't be a real job. And I would decide I'm going to go to law school instead because I was terrified. The fear that drove me was I was terrified to have my dad's life. I was terrified that I was going to be in that moment where I was going to be 39 years old and I was going to lose everything. And I was going to be have that, you know, money was very hard for my family to come by and it created a lot of hardship. And I didn't want that. So to me, I never was at, oh, I'm going to go right for a year and I'm going to take a year off and see what happens. It, it just wasn't meant to be. You, d- you didn't have that luxury. I didn't, right. I didn't have the luxury. And so I went to law school instead. You um, went to Columbia, I think? I went to Columbia after. I went to Michigan for undergrad. When I came out of Michigan, a guy named Eli Siegel um, said to me, he was going to be my mentor. He said, don't go to law school. Don't do anything. Come work for me. If you love it, you stay. If you hate it, you leave with some money in your pocket. I thought that's a good deal. So I moved my stuff to Boston, moved everything to Boston. The week I got to Boston, he left the job. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've wrecked my life. Right? I wrecked my life. I did what all of us would do, Mitch, in those cases where we think we wrecked our lives. I said, I'm going to write a novel. And it seemed like the logical thing to do. And I wrote my first novel. That novel got me 24 rejection letters. There were only 20 publishers at the time. I got 24 <laughs> rejection letters. But I fell in love with the process of writing. And I said, if they don't like that book, I'm going to write another. And if they don't like that, I'm going to write another. And the week after I got my 23rd and 24th rejection letter, I started the 10th Justice, which was, as you know, my first published work. But but you're also lawyering. I, but I was going to say, but at that time, I was in law school. You were in law school. And I, and I got my 23rd and 24th rejection letter in my first year of law school. But I didn't care at that point because I just said, I have this law degree to fall back on. That was the fear that drove me. Um, if the writing thing doesn't work out, I'm taking the bar. I still, you know, I took the bar. I still have my law license because I feel like the moment I say I'm done, I'm truly finished. And that was where it started. I also know from talking to him, because we know each other, that the experience you had in high school with the teachers who believed in you made you a confident made you confident in your ability to be able to write a novel. Well, you have I to understand think. that just because you don't have stuff in my family, my family um, never, we, sh- we should ever limit our confidence to do something. Right? Right. <laughs> well, we, well, we, we may not have had cash, but we had confidence. And uh, God bless my mom and dad for that. Um, but y- you're right. I mean, Miss um, uh, Spicer, when I was in ninth grade, I was in Highland Oaks element, uh, Middle School. And she said to me, she changed my life with three words. She said to me, you can write. And I was like, well, everyone can write. She said, no, 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 you know what you're doing. And I said, okay. She tried to put me in the honors class. I had some sort of conflict. She said, here's what we're going to do. You're going to sit in the corner for the entire year. You're going to do the honors work instead. Ignore everything I do on the blackboard. Do the honors work instead. And what she was really saying to me was, you're going to thank me later. And when my first book came out, I remember going back to Miss Spicer's classroom it was 10 years later. I knocked on the door and I, she said, can I help you? And I said, my name is Brad Meltzer. I wrote this book and it's for you. And she was crying. I remember she was the one who turned me on to Dave Barry. I remember she had me reading Dave Barry columns. I mean, it was just this whole new world that she opened up for me um, that just blew me away. And those became those first writers that I knew the names of um, beyond comic books and things that I always read. So I mentioned him. I got to tell you. So here's the story. This is a, this is a true story. Um, 
we, I, there was no money for books in my house. My, my mom got the star in the Inquirer. My dad would get like the newspaper, the sports section, but there was no, there wasn't a book. My first hardcover book that I ever bought ever was, um, it was Dave Barry's greatest hits. And I remember I would look, I would go bookstore to bookstore, whoever had it cheapest. I waited for it to come down. I, it was just so much money. It was like $12. It was so much money to me. And I finally bought it. And Dave Barry came at that point. He did a signing in Boston when I was living in Boston. And I was writing my first novel. And I asked Dave to actually speak at my high school graduation. That's how much I loved him. He was my hero back then. And he doesn't remember any of this, but I told him. And um, he said no, and because he's a, a you know, a bitter, petty man. Um, and so I've teased him about it for a since. And I love Dave. And I went to the book signing that he was having in Boston and I stood in line and I'm standing in line with this woman. And she said, you know, I was Dave Barry's prom date. She says to me, I'm like, no, you weren't. She goes, I was. And I, and I go to his junior prom and I said, are you serious? She goes, yeah. I go, okay, wait here. And when she got in line, I jumped in front of her and I said, I screamed out, Dave, Barry, this is your life. Do you remember your junior high school prom date? And I said, here she is. And I jumped aside and there she was. And it really was her. And so when it was my turn in line, I had my book for him to sign, which he signed. But I also had a, a little envelope with my first novel in it. And I said, Dave, you are always my literary hero. Would you read my book? And he said to me, I never, ever take these things, but that was funny. So I'm taking it. <laughs> and I was, you know, 19 years old at the time and he took it and he wrote me a very sweet letter back, said, you know, you have to submit this to an agent. You got to put it out there in the world. That's how you get to be an author. Um, and I owe him forever for that kind uh, of advice. That is, that's a wonderful story. And it sums up both you and Dave. Yeah. Well, I got to know your parents early yeah. on and uh, your whole sense of family and something that comes through in everything that you do is a sense of um, a, a sense of commitment to family, a sense of commitment and a sense of social responsibility that you have. That's always been a part of who you are. Uh, some of the work that you do locally as well as not so local, which deals with uh, giving kids opportunities, the work you do with um, city, year. city Year and all of that. But it, the thing that I was always amazed by and it really taught me something with my own kids in seeing your parents were just, at least on the out, outside, the utter devotion that they had to, to you and to Corey. Yeah, well. no, I mean, that's a thing. I mean, now that I'm a parent, right, I met you, right? I mean, I had no kids. Your kids were my kids. Yeah, you know, they you were, were tiny, right? Um, and my parents, I always joke, they, could, they didn't know what classes I took. They had no idea what my essays were about. They didn't know what, you know, anything that was really going on in my school life. Everything was solved. When I took the PSAT, I remember someone came locally to me and said, you taking the PSAT this weekend? I was like, I don't know what that is, <laughs> but if you're taking it, I'm taking it. My parents had no clue on how that world in so suburbia worked. you worked your way through I mean, I give it a, I give, I give a fake address to go to the public school I went to because my parents were zoned for a, a worse neighborhood. So they didn't even get my report cards. They weren't even sent home. My report cards used to go to another address and they didn't care. That didn't matter to them. But the one thing my parents could do, I still maintain to this day better than any parent I've ever seen, is love their kid. That's it. And, and my belief is you can screw everything you want up with your kid, 
But if your kid knows that you don't love them, they have a hole that will never be filled. And if they know that you absolutely love them no matter what, they have a strength, like a pillar that will never be removed. And that's what my parents gave me. That's my confidence, my sense of humor. Everything I am is just that it was it was this foundation. It was a law that my parents' love was yeah. for me. They were they were forces of nature. They parents. were. I mean, I remember going to the what, my first Miami book fair, and I remember one of the authors who I was on a panel with said to me, "Can I rent your parents?" Because <laughs> they were watching my parents work the room and sell books and talk to strand. My dad was an insurance salesman, so he was just selling, selling. Well, they would. Your dad, as soon as you would have an event, this was going back. 20 years, he'd say, okay, how do we do tonight? Yeah, yeah. he would come up for the count because he was a sales guy, yeah. right? He was like, what's the count, man? And what do mother, we do? Your mother, I remember a, a story that uh, you told me about your mom. Tell that story about how your mom uh, would go into the stores. Oh, yeah. So my mom, yeah, no, God bless her. Uh, my mother used to go into the stores and she'd say, what do you mean John Grisham's in the front window? And then she'd pull John Grisham's <laughs> book out of the window and she'd say, now Meltzer's in the front window. And, and, and the funny part was, is I went to... Um, I went to, the, when Borders was still around, I went to Ann Arbor, Michigan, the headquarters of Borders, and the head of sales for Borders said to me, guess where your books sell more than anywhere else? And he said, straight sales, not even per capita. I said, I don't know, New York City, 8 million New Yorkers in one place. Nope. I said, Washington, D.C. I write thrillers set in D.C. Nope. The number one place where my book sold was the Boca Raton, Florida Borders, one mile from the furniture store where my mother used to work, which means my mother single-handedly beat 8 million New Yorkers. Um, and that's the power of the mom, right? It's yeah. like that love that you have. And, and I, it's the lesson I take from my own kids. It's like, I think so much today we can, you know, especially if you, if, you know, you've been to college, I've been to college, we know that life, we know how to like interfere with our kids at high levels. Um but I every day try to tell myself, you know what? Just love your kid. That's all that matters. Well, and I think that that sense of curiosity, that sense of love also has informed much of what you've done because, you know, I mean, you've, you've got like seven careers all wrapped up in one person who's fairly young. I mean, all of the thrillers that you've written. Um, but then because of, I think because of that love of your own kids and the love of wanting or the desire to bring things to kids of meaning, you started the I Am series, which yeah. is kind of remarkable. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, um, so I talked about, I told you my dad on the day I was born bought that bottle of champagne. And on the day that I got married, we did open up that bottle of champagne. We drank it at my wedding. It was the foulest, nastiest <laughs> glass of champagne we ever had in our lives. Right. But it was the greatest glass of champagne had to be we best. ever had. It's because it was built out of my dad's love, right? And But on the day my son was born, I don't care about champagne. I like, you know, dessert, maybe chocolate or things like that. But ice cream, I don't care about champagne. Uh, so I said, I, I didn't buy a bottle of champagne for my kid when he was born. What I said is I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book that lasts his whole life. And I'm going to give it to him. And I'm going to fill it with rules for him to live by and to be a good man. One day I'll present it to him. He'll say, Thank you, Father. You're indeed the greatest dad of all time, right? I had this big parade plan for myself. Um, but I just love my kid. That's all it was. The book was terrible, but I love my kid. And it started me realizing that that's what I wanted to give my son, is a book of stories and books of heroes. It was a great book. And, Her and it was Heroes for My son. son. And, and a friend of mine, Simon Sinek, told me this amazing story about the Wright brothers. As he said, every time the Wright brothers went out to fly their plane, they'd bring enough extra materials for multiple crashes, which means every time they went out, they knew they would fail. They would crash and rebuild and crash and rebuild. And that's why they took off. And I love that story, 
right? I want my sons to hear that story. I want my daughter to hear that story. I want everyone to know you have a, you dream big, you work hard, you have a good side order of stubbornness. You can do anything in this world. And so I started with Heroes for My Son. We did Heroes for My Daughter. Um, and then we started the I Am series because really my daughter was, was the impetus because if I, I told her, Amelia Hart flew across the Atlantic Ocean, she's like, big deal, dad. Everyone flies across the Atlantic. But if I tell her, then this is true, that Amelia Earhart, when she was seven years old, built a homemade roller coaster in her backyard. And she shoved it to the roof of her tool shed. She came down, you know, put roller skating wheels on the bottom of a, a crate and she came flying down two by fours that were greased with lard so she would go fast. And she goes flying through the air. My daughter's like, whoa, tell me more. Exactly. And that's where the I Am series came when we started with I Am Amelia Earhart and I Am Abraham Lincoln. And we've done Rosa Parks and I am Albert Einstein and I am Jackie Robinson and I am Dr. King and, and Jim Henson and George Washington and Jane Goodall and Gandhi. Gandhi and Sacagawea. And we are just, my goal when I first went into them, they said, oh, you want to sell two books? I am Amelia Earhart, I am Abraham Lincoln. I said, no, 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 I want to write a hundred. They were like, what? I'm like, I want to write a hundred. I want to build a library of real heroes to bring values to your kids, to teach them what they're really capable of on their best days. And, that's and booksellers everywhere celebrate that fact because no, we've been I love selling that. them like mad. <laughs> no, and, and you know the funny thing is, I don't know if I told you this, but you know, um, since Donald Trump got elected, this amazing thing started happening with the series. It was actually as the election was approaching. So as Hillary and Donald Trump are banging their heads against each other, we started seeing, and I've never seen this before. We all know books are, you know, in general, it's really hard in the book industry for all of us now, right? Books are just it's hard to compete with Netflix and everything else. But suddenly a couple books started popping up. I am Martin Luther King Jr. I am George Washington. I am Rosa Parks. Started selling like crazy. We're like, these were two, three-year-old books. We're like, what's going on? And then the whole series takes off. And it was that, it wasn't a Democrat or Republican thing, but it was that on both sides, people were tired of putting on the TV and seeing politicians and what they wanted to show their kids were, were leaders. And we all know there's a huge difference between a leader and a politician. And, uh, you know, the I Am series for me is is what I love about it is it helps people build libraries of real heroes for their kids and their grandkids and, their nieces and, and their nephews. And, and it's an antidote to the political discourse well, that the we're thing all is, stuck I, in. Right I, I said, you know, we everyone thinks it's this, this book of, of uh, history series and it's not. On the back of every book is a moral lesson. So on the back of I Am Amelia Earhart, it says, I know no bounds. On the back of I Am Abraham Lincoln, it says, I will speak my mind and speak for others. The new one, I'm Neil Armstrong, is about humility. He never used the word I. Remember when we had leaders who didn't just say, I, 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 right? We could go, we need to go back there again. And my goal is to take this series and I'm going to build an army of kids who are engaged and are learning about kindness and compassion and generosity, things we've lost as a country. Yeah. Our leaders have certainly lost them um, and we got to give them back and we're going to arm a new generation of kids with these books. And thankfully it's working. And, and there's that sense of not forgetting. Yeah, it's well, that's my love of, of history, right? The sense of whose shoulders we stand on. Right. I mean, that's the thing. You know, it's funny. I, I, you, you were mentioning before, because you know me better than most interviews I'll ever talk to. And you were saying, oh, this, you know, this ability to kind of like care about your family and, and remember. And, you, and, and for me, I, I was thinking to myself, is that some kind of sick loyalty or just my love of history? Right. I truly believe that. It's right there. It's right there if you just pay attention and look at it. But the problem is we all forget it because we're so frustrated and we're so busy and we're so you know on Twitter and doing everything else we do. Um, that it's so easy to forget. 
Well, when it came out, I mean, as I told you, Brad has done he's worked in every different uh, media that you can imagine, and he's he's had television programs as well. So, the the the, uh, the nonfiction TV programs you did, like Decoded and some yeah. of the others, falls right in line yeah, with no, all I, of that. Well, all, you know, all the things have one thing in common, right? Whether it's the fiction, whether it's a nonfiction, the kids' books, the TV shows, even the comic books. It's my core belief. And you know me 20 years is, you know, I believe ordinary people change the world. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care how much money you make. That's nonsense to me. I believe in regular people and their ability to affect change in this world. And it's why I believe in a little girl named Amelia Earhart and a 12-year-old boy named Abraham Lincoln. And it's why every book starts with when they're kids. That's the vital part for me. And everything I do... Um, it falls into place. In fact, my friend Simon Sinek, who I was telling you about, he was one who helped me come up with that phrase. He's like, that's what you believe. You believe ordinary people change the world. And I, and I knew it. And as soon as we talked about it, I, I said it to my mother. And I went back to her. I said, Mom, you know, we found it. We found what, this is my purpose. You know, it's like, and I believe that. And my mother goes, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. She goes, I could have told you that. You've been like that since birth. That's you've always believed. And I was like, I know, mom, but you didn't say it out loud. And I'm like, she's like. Well, it's funny because, you know, one of the things that Brad has too, and I I want all of you to go to it, is he's got one of the best websites, author websites that I've ever seen. And right on there is this quote. And the quote is, we are all ordinary. We are all boring. We are all spectacular. We are all shy. We are all bold. We are all heroes. We are all helpless. It just depends on the day. Yeah. Isn't that true? The funny part is that quote, it's so interesting. So here I am banging my head against the wall writing 24 different books. And if you go on Goodreads, that's the number one quote for me. Is that right? And it, it comes from what I wrote for my daughter and the introduction of Heroes for My Daughter. It's not even in any of the books I wrote. It's just my core philosophy to my kid, but it's the one that connected. It's because that's how I be- that's what I believe. Um, and that's what the whole series is based on. The whole series is based on that. I mean, I believe every one of us on every day is amazing and terrified and wonderful and awful and compassionate and selfish and, you know, stupendous. And it just depends what day you catch us on, what hour you catch us on. Sometimes we're all those things within 20 minutes. Um, and I, I just think, we have to acknowledge that and accept each other for it because otherwise we're going well, to hate to each say, other. I have to say something too. Going through what you went through with your parents, they were really, really fortunate to have such an empathetic son as well. I don't know if I was empathetic or I think, I think like great story, you know, great stories to me come from a need. Right. And I think when you're in a situation, it also comes, like, I don't know if I, I don't think I was born so empathetic. I just needed it because my parents, you know, my dad was just blowing stuff up. Yeah. And so I needed to develop that skill to survive. It was a, like, I really believe it was a survival instinct. I was t- saying to my wife, she's like, you know, I met my, my wife in junior high school and she's, she had Miss Spicer too. She had my same history teacher. She's like, why didn't I have those experiences? She's like, I love Miss Spicer, but she goes, why didn't I have all these experiences that you had from the same teachers? I was there too. You know, she was the valedictorian, salutatorian, you know, she was right. king of the class. And it took me a while to finally realize I was like, I said to her, cause you didn't need the help. I did. I got that because they saw in me, I needed it. I was running around and I was clueless and they, and they saw something, God knows what it was, but she, you know, you, and, and to me, I think that, that some of that empathy was just because that was my survival instinct and I'm happy for it. I don't, I wouldn't change it, but I felt like it was, it was as much of a goal as it was a need. 
We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Literary Life. I'm back with Brad Meltzer. This is The Literary Life. And we've been talking to Brad about all the different facets of his work and his early life and and some of the things that went into making him just who he is. But Brad, one of the things that I can never escape is the fact that whenever we do an event here, I would say that a good half of the audience, maybe a little bit less, is here because they know you as one of the premier writers of comics. Where did that come from? Uh, Were you an inveterate comic book reader when you were a kid? I mean, I was obsessed. That was my obsession. I'm sure you have a lot of people on on this podcast who talk about like the great books and they read, you know, this one and that one. And I read comic books. That was my, I mean, I read Agatha Christie. I remember going to the library and Agatha Christie and getting Judy Bloom. Those are my two favorites. but it was all comic books for me. It was Marv Wolfman and, you know, Alan Moore and, you know, Kurt Swan art and George Perez and all the Silver Age amazing artists and Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, um, you know, from all the way back to all the way forward. And that was my love. And so I've been in my, even in the 10th Justice, my first novel, I was hiding comic book references in there. And I'm not talking about like, oh, I put Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent in there. Like, you had to be a, a, a tenth know. level nerd <laughs> to catch it. And and they caught him. Like I put it out and within a week someone would come up to me and they'd be like, Oh, the justices are named after Watchmen. Nice work. Long before there was a Watchmen movie or any nonsense. Right. And they would just get it. You know, they'd see in the third book that, you know, I was doing the Justice Society members as the, you know, executive at the office of the president, all the minor people were all they all had these names that you would just know. It was this tiny literary reference for like point oh oh one percent of the country. So what kind of a thrill was it when you either were asked or you did it, you, your agent went to them to do a comic? Well, the funny, yeah, own. the funny part was, is they approached me, um, the director, Kevin Smith, who did Clerks and all oh, these sure. movies, right? He was the, he was writing Green Arrow at the time. It was the number one selling superhero book that I DC had. That. He was the first person to really break through. As an That author. was like an author who or, did something else right. and was going to comic. Comics were not cool then. No one, like now everyone, comics are cool now. Back then they weren't. This is 15 years ago. And Kevin, God bless him, was the first man through the door. Um, there were a couple others that came in years past, like, you know, there was Sam Hamm who wrote the Batman script, but like, truly who was like the a nerd among nerds breaking through. And it was the number one book. And on the last person in line for my novel, The Millionaires, at the first event in New York was the editor of Green Arrow. And he said, I want you to write Green Arrow. He said, if you succeed, it's our number one book. If I put another comic book writer on this book, everyone's going to go, where's Kevin Smith? Where's the director? If I put you on this book, a novelist that no one knows, everyone's going to say, what is DC Comics doing, taking their number one book and giving it to a thriller writer I've never heard of? And he said, you're going to succeed on a big stage or you're going to fail on a big stage, but you're going to be on the big stage if you want to take a chance. And I said, I'll take that chance any day. And I became the second person through the door and I, you know, at the time, I remember people going, why are you slumming in comics? Why are you doing this? And I was on the first panel, I was at BEA and I was on a panel with Walter Mosley and Janet Ivanovich. And they introduced right there, they said, Brad's going to be writing Green Arrow. And, you know, people were like, why are you doing that? And I remember Walter, uh, Janet Ivanovich leaned over and told me she loved Wonder Woman. And Walter Mosley leaned over to me and said, does Green Arrow still have Speedy? 
which is his sidekick that only a good nerd would know. And, and I realized I became like the drug dealer of comic books <laughs> to every novelist out there. So every novelist who wanted to write comics was suddenly approaching me and being like, hey, man, can we talk secretly over here? And, and I just was like, the first one's free, but you know where to get more. And um, I became that, that kind of and, gateway. And, and look what's happened. And it's just been incredible. It's and, and just I, and, exploded. And the reason why I think you see the comic book reader at our events, I mean, one is because I still have been writing comics over the years, but um, and there is no greater, better, more loyal, more amazing person than those people who love comic books. And I include myself there. I mean, the people who I love... I will buy whatever they put out just to support them for the entertainment they gave me when I was 13 years old and I needed friends, when I needed justice, when I needed right from wrong. Like I'm committed to those authors I love and I'm thankful that people have been kind enough to me. Well, and I think what it's also done and what you did is gave, allowed those writers like the Walter Mosleys, but even other writers like Ta-Nehisi Coates and others to be able to say, I'm going to take the plunge and I'm going to do what I loved. These were like secret. Yeah. They were secret readers well, of comics. Listen, I appreciate that. I don't think any of those, any of those writers need help from me, but I love well, the fact, you know what? I, I, I'm not a, I don't consider myself, you know, writers tend not to say that call ourselves cool. What I think the ultimate definition of cool is, is the person who does not care about being cool. Right. And, and for most things I care, right? For most things like anyone else, I, I try to be cool, but I'm not that cool. You are actually a generally cool person, right? You have like this, this vibe that you, you know, I always am jealous of that is amazing. Um, when it comes to comics, I'm as cool as can be because I didn't give a crap when nobody liked them. When I was the only kid, there was a point where I was, the, I think, the only kid in school. Maybe there was one other, and I was wearing a Superman and Batman shirt every day. They were bootleg. <laughs> I had to find them on the streets at Berkeley that someone had silkscreen because no one had a Frank Miller Batman logo shirt, and I wore it three times a week. You couldn't even wash it three times a week. I was just wearing it because no one else had it, and it was mine. And I knew, I remember other friends that I met later said it was so nerdy. I'm like, I didn't care. I knew it was, I didn't care because I loved it so much. Well, one of the, one of the kind of uh, thrilling things that we do at the book fair periodically is have bread and conversation with some of those uh, uh, folks who deal with comics and graphic novels well, like funny Chip, part with Chip I was going to say Chip. So, so we do the 10th justice. This is a great, I never tell this story. So, you know, here's Chip Kid, the most famous cover artist in all of, uh, all of publishing, did the Jurassic Park logo, does everything you know. And, he, and they hired him to do the 10th Justice. Rob Weisbach, our publisher at the time, had hired him. And Chip and I get together, and it's supposed to be like, you know, you're kind of going to see the king himself. And we just, in two seconds, because nerds can smell each other, put together, we both love comics. And friend, in fact, I just was in dinner with him three weeks ago down here. He's one of my oldest friends in the industry, because we realized, oh, you're like me. You love this stuff. And there we are talking Silver Age Batman and Golden Age, you know, and, and what do we think? And where does the Bronze Age begin? And like, we're just losing our minds. But that, how's that Chip, how's Chip doing? Okay. Uh, he's at he's a, yeah, had a no, loss. Uh, yeah. Know. Disaster. I mean, a loss of one of the, you know, the great men, the, yeah. you know, the love of his life. Um, right. uh, and he was, it was the first time I saw him since. And, you know, again, I was like, I don't want to talk about loss. Let's talk about comics. Yeah. And good. that was a good thing. That is great. And in fact, you know, what's ironic is in the fact that we're having this conversation is that I just read two days ago that for the very first time, the Man Booker Award. Uh, going to a comic. Is, well, it's, it's oh, yeah, at least on the long right, list. Right, on the long list. The very first time it's ever been. Which is been a shame a, also, by the way. Yeah. Oh, but, but here's the thing. Shit. Here's the thing is that 
comics are cool now and that's why they call them graphic novels that's just snobbery yeah right i, I mean, call them comics right usually. i mean they're still i mean and and we call them graphic novels because like oh it's you know it's something that sounds better but to me whatever your genre you know we used to think that there was literary fiction at the top and it was a pyramid that went down and somewhere in the bottom were comics and then we call them graphic novels to make them sound a little fancier but to me every genre from literary fiction to thrillers to comics to any of the romance anything in between 90 percent of it is crap 10% of it is gold, always. Absolutely. And our job is to find the gold. The good stuff. And to me, comics have always had the gold. It's I just love that they're finally well, getting the recognition. One of the great things that I experienced at one of the Miami book fairs was when Art Spiegelman was there and he gave a kind of uh, lecture as to the best way to read a comic. Yeah, no, was, it's funny because for me, yeah, you know, people don't know how to read done, it. Yeah, a lot of people who didn't grow up with it. I taught my son. He's like, yeah. Dad, which way does it go? I'm like, oh, don't. And I'm like, what do you mean? Because my brain works <laughs> like that after 40 years of doing right, this. And right. I was like, oh, let me show you how it goes. And I showed him how to do it. Well, I, th I know that you believe, as I believe, that the most important thing you can do with any kid or anybody is just to get them to read. To, you know, if, if, if you're a lifelong reader, that will make up for a lot of things that is, might be missing in your life. I, I mean, reading for me, and especially comic books, filled a hole, again, a need that was there. And, right. and that was where my sense of right and wrong came from. It was, you know, I saw a lot of injustice in what was happening to us. But in that world... When I sat down with that 24-page comic book, now 22 pages because they took out two. Um, but in that moment, those 24 pages, the good guys won, a good story was told, and there was justice, which was something that I wasn't seeing. And, I, and there were people that were like me. And, you know, I, I owe comics forever for that, forever. Um, to me, comic book, you know, Superman's, the best part of the story is not Superman. The best part of the story is Clark Kent, right? because we're all Clark Kent, and we all know what it's like to be boring and ordinary and wish we could do something incredibly beyond ourselves. So are the good guys going to win this time? Uh, the good guys are having a rough <laughs> year. Um, you know, I think the one thing I learned about comics is that I love comics because they show me good and bad. And I think as you get older, you just realize the world isn't good and bad. It's just not. It, it can't be that simple. And I think the hardest part that we're having now is that we've turned it back into good and bad. We we have leaders who only, you know, you're with us or you're against right. us. That is just a sure way to doom. And what I've always respected about you is that you, you know, in all of the research that you've done, you've befriended people from all sides of the political spectrum. I mean, you had yeah. a real relationship with the Bushes, for instance. Yeah, Barbara Bush was just, you know, God bless her. I mean, what I loved about her and, it, you know, you, whatever anyone's politics are, um, what I loved about Barbara Bush is she didn't care if you were a Democrat. She didn't care if you were a Republican. She didn't care if you were the king of England. And she didn't care if you swept the floor. Right. Her judgment of you is, are you funny and interesting? If not, get the hell right. out of my way. She had a real bullshit detector. Right. She had the bullshit level. With, <laughs> and, and, you know, I'd be sitting at these events and they'd have these super high literary, amazing, you know, Booker Prize winners that would come in. They were nominated for the Pulitzer. And we would be like, boring, boring, <laughs> boring person. And we would just be laughing and telling jokes and engaging and, and living. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I, I realize this woman's my, my mother. Yeah. You know, she's like you my know, mother. She, you know, you know you she was. I know. She very much was like your mother. And, I, and it took me until her funeral and to I figure it out. Of, I, never I didn't either. And that. then she, when she passed away, I was like, oh, my gosh, yeah. it's my mother yeah just um, unfiltered would say unfil what and didn't care and say. didn't judge you and, and right. what i love is she didn't care what my politics were she never once asked me what my right. politics were she was just like i like you and that's a good thing and and we've gotten away from that now we define each other by immediately where's your stamp how do you vote and and I, and let's be clear 
there's judgments to be made, right. right? However, when we lose sight and just judge people as good or bad and nothing in between, we lose all nuance. We lose people, all you know, as people, reason. Someone pointed out just recently that I had never really thought of before, but party identification is at the highest it's ever been. Oh, of course. And I think that's because we have moved into these camps. Well, well that's the thing. Is what, on, right. Well, we've just simplified everything, yeah. right? You're good or you're bad. You're Democrat, you're Republican. And, and whatever your side you're on, the other side is an, a mortal enemy. And if, you know, again, if you're, if you're a hammer, you look for nails. If you're, you know, if you want to see everything as, you know, well, white, and, then and you're going to find the black. Yeah, and unfortunately, where we are now makes you sometimes choose that because no, and listen, we're in a and, very and, precarious period. And, right and this is the point where, and I'll be the first one to say, because everyone's like, oh, Brad, you speak so nicely about people, whatever. but how do I explain when you have a racist going out there and saying things and race baiting people? And I'm like, you know what? You have to stand against that. Right. I mean, you have to stand up. I remember the day they were attacking Muslims. I went on Twitter and I said, I know this is going to take me heat, but on this day, I need everyone to know I'm Muslim today. Yeah. Because to me, when history is written, I need to know whether you're on the right side or not of standing up for people who are being picked on. That's it. That's that's the it's that, that that's that's that is that is to me what the core of the superhero is, right? It's the bully scene, and what do you do? It's the, my favorite Abraham Lincoln story. It runs through everything I've ever written. My favorite Abraham Lincoln story. He's ten years old. He come upon he come he used to love animals. He comes upon a group of boys playing with turtles, and he's like, I love turtles. Races over to go play with the turtles, and what he sees is they're not playing with the turtles. They're putting hot coals mm. on the backs of the turtles, torturing them to make them move faster. And I don't care, you know, in that moment, he has to decide what to do. I don't care if you're 10 years old or you're 40 years old. Sometimes it's hard to do the right thing. But someone has to. Someone has to. And in those moments where you see, like, I couldn't go to bed and say, and, and have these books with my name on them. The books have one thing in common is they're people who, when they saw an injustice, they said something. And to me, you have to do that today. Um, but at the same time, I don't think you have to make, I think, playing us first them. I'm tired of that. Like, I truly believe that that is, get, will get us nowhere. I think we have to get back to find a we and find the things we have in common. The common humanity. Right. Like, to me, have. what Barbara Bush found is, like, she could find that common humanity. And we have it. We just are not showing it right now. What we're showing is, you know, I think there are people who bring out the best in us. And right now, we're sadly bringing out the worst in us. Well, and I think the sense of history that you have is extremely important. We, we sort of lack a... Often we're lacking a civic, um, um, sort of a common civic sense. Sure. And that's what history does. It gives you that common civic sense. Well, it also gives you, it shows you we're not that special, right? Because these battles have been fought before. They'll be fought again. And it's They're going to be fought again. And, and we come from, unfortunately, a culture which, you know, there are, our society has been one in which it's been rough. You know, it's been no, of course. over 200 rough years, 300 to 250 rough years. Um I do want to talk about your upcoming book because mm. this is something that I'm very excited about. It's, I, I think it's your first foray really yeah. into sort of uh, true nonfiction, creative nonfiction, yeah. real nonfiction. Talk a little bit about it. It's called The First Conspiracy. Subtitle is The Secret Plot Against George Washington and the Birth of American Counterintelligence. Yes. What could be more relevant than I mean, that? Right. Right it's, I mean, so this book started almost a decade ago. And I was combing through the footnotes of something. I, I don't even remember what I was reading. And just always just obsessively looking for stuff. I was researching George Washington for a book uh, that I was writing. 
one of the thrillers. And, um, and I found this thing. It was in some footnotes said about some secret plot to kill George Washington. And I was like, what's that? I don't know. I didn't know if it was real. I didn't know if it was some internet myth. I didn't know what it was. I put it in the book as in the thriller as it's mentioned in a paragraph, but what no one knew is I couldn't shake it. And I started researching it and I started going crazy for it. And, um, and I remember going to Joseph Ellis, who wrote one of the premier George Washington sure. biographies. And I said to him, I found this thing and I don't know, is it true? Is it real? And he's like, you know, he knew the story. And he's like, the honest truth is, Brad, he's like, you got to go find it out. He's like, because, and I'm paraphrasing him now, but what he said was, is what you're looking for by its nature involves his spies, right? It involves all the secrets. It was a plot to kill him that no one knew about and they kind of got covered up. And he said... So by its inherent nature, what you're looking for is going to be hard to find. You can find every name and the exact amount of slaves that George Washington owned, but you'll never find all of his spies. Mm. You'll never find them. But let me know what you find. And so I started looking and it truly happened. Uh, there was a plot to kill George Washington. Some said to kidnap him, some said to kill him. Even if you kidnapped him, you were going to kill him. And when George Washington found out about it, he gathered up 20,000 people. He built a gallows. He took one of the people in charge and he hung him in front of 20,000 people, the largest public execution at that time in North American history. And he brought the hammer down. He was like, I am George Washington. Do not mess with me. I'm going to be on money one day. You know, he was, I'm, I'm paraphrasing there, but that's you know, pretty, <laughs> I think he said, I'll be on ye old money one day. Um, and it was a true story and it just got lost because so much stuff was happening. It was the time, it was June of 1776 as this was happening. Guess what else is happening in the world in June of 1776, right? July 4th is coming. The British are about to invade. We're at the height of the, you know, the first biggest battles of the war where they're here. And no one knew that someone on George Washington's side switched sides and Washington killed him. It was incredible. And I was like, I need to find the story. So I, I've been searching for years. I brought on um, to work with me uh, Josh Mensch, who was the executive producer of our TV show, Lost History. He was the best researcher and writer that we had um, and in charge of the show. And I said, let's do this together. And we're going to tell an amazing story. And it's one of my favorite books we've ever done because it, you, you're reading it. And it's funny. I gave it to my wife who's impressed with nothing anymore. And she was like, Brad, this is really good. And I'm like, I know because the story is good. It's an incredible true story. And um, so the first conspiracy comes out uh, in January and you'll see the full story of it. That's I won't fantastic. It. Yeah. Jen January of 2019, it, it, uh, we're taking pre-orders at Books and Books for it right now, in fact. But, uh, Brad, this has been delightful. Oh, you know, thank you. I, I am, you know, you've had such a prolific career, and you're still, in my eyes, a, relative, a very young man. And I can only hope and imagine what the future will bring. And uh, I look forward to a lot more uh, conversations with you. Listen, I, I love you. Let me, I, I, I have to say this because I know you had to do your ending, but I, I've told you this privately, but I want any people to hear it is when I stayed in my first book signing um, in Aventura, the local bookstore there uh, would not host me. My parents lived in Aventura. They were there. They wanted it in their backyard. They wanted to invite all the, you know, every person they could find. Uh, and then this little bookstore named Books and Books said, we'll host you. And this is the only store where I've been for every book. 
And I've been everywhere for lots of different books from, you know, to the best bookstores in the country. But this is the one I come to for every book. And I thank you for giving me my start because if you're not, I don't get to sit here today. So thanks. Well, and I thank you for allowing me into your family and no, experiencing you know it the way that is. What you just heard, by the way, is that's our introduction, Mitch and I do every time we, we, we do <laughs> yes, a bookstore exactly. here. But, but I, 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 I insist that I repeat it because I know there's a new person in the crowd who needs to hear it. Thanks, Brett. Love you. Love you too. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts. And also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.